For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. We continue now with our study through these wise sayings that help us build lives of beauty, stability, and blessing. Open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 24 and join Pastor Ross as we seek God's wisdom for our life. So we are making it through the book of Proverbs. A lot of Proverbs to cover, but with the Lord's help, we're we're doing it. Let's ask for more of that help. Heavenly Father, now we, we love your wisdom. Your wisdom keeps us safe. It blesses us. And as the word declares, when we walk in wisdom, we are blessed. We have uh, prosperity. We have joy. Uh, we have fellowship with you, Lord, and we're useful to you. And we live effective and productive lives. Now we pray that you'd give us ears to hear, that you'd open the eyes, as we sang earlier, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we may know the truth and put it into practice and be blessed in Christ's name. Amen. Well, nobody ever wants to get sick. It's the last thing you want, to contract uh, some sort of deadly disease. Amen? Well, you know, when there's an outbreak of something contagious... Um, that's deadly, like Ebola or those kinds of diseases, uh, you'll notice the people in the affected areas will wear protective clothing and they'll watch who they're spending time with and they will also make sure not to get too close uh, because getting too close with an infected person uh, could be a deadly mistake. Now, spiritually speaking, the Bible uses uh, contagious diseases like leprosy to stand for as a metaphor of sin, and that sin is contagious, so that the influence of others can rub off upon us and get us sick, spiritually speaking, as well. And so, uh, and that's bad because sin is the wages of sin is death. And so if you get sick spiritually, uh, you're going to end up with some, something empty and destructive and terrible, everything that death uh, stands for. So uh, this is why we're told, keep your distance from these, those who are outwardly manifesting these kinds of symptoms. So take a look at the first proverb. Don't envy wicked men. Don't desire their company. There it is. Don't, 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 don't want to be their best friend. Don't get close. Don't make heart-to-heart contact. For their hearts plot violence and their lips talk about making trouble. So generally speaking, and, and we've seen this in the, in the Proverbs, it just calls them sinners. Or sinners are, just means to transgress, to cross over the line or to miss the mark. And so here's a warning against uh, uh, character flaws that will lead you astray. And in this case, uh, into close proximity with a corrupting influence. And the vehicle that's going to take you to that place is called 
envy. And so he wants to talk to you about the prompt that gets you close to the ledge to keep you from going there. So 1 Corinthians 15.33, I, I think I feel like I preach that, mention that one every week. Bad company corrupts good morals. So uh, the vehicle to get you close to that bad company is usually envy. So therefore, he's saying, my son, let's talk about envy. Watch out for it. Don't desire their company. Don't envy them. And, and so you're uh, uh, staying away from somebody, uh, not in a ministry way, not in a self-righteous way, but in a guard your heart from admiring and partnering and being BFF. BFFs with uh, somebody who is morally compromised. That's the point here. And we get that a lot. Avoid a person who talks too much. That's a proverb. It says stay away from somebody who gossips all the time because you'll turn into a gossip or you'll be the recip- on the receiving end of their gossip. Avoid a person who has a hot temper. That's what it says in the Bible. It says in the New Testament, don't go near a sexually immoral person who, who calls himself a brother. Do not even eat with such a one. Well, how Christian is that? Very. Because it's in the New Testament as a command. Yeah. I mean, the world says, that's not very Christian. Well, actually, you're obeying a command. Uh, and, and so... Uh, don't warm up and cozy up and partner with, with somebody who has this kind of sin or poor character because, or, or theological um, weirdnesses because it's contagious. And so what's to envy about sinners? Everything. Of course, what's, what's not to envy about somebody who could do anything that they want and, and live in luxury and have the paparazzi around and go on exotic vacations and, and do all of this stuff and free and autonomous and all of that worldly pop, uh, popularity, sensual ex- exploits and all of that. He says, listen, don't fall for that. Verses three and four. By wisdom, a house is built and through understanding, it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with, a rare, with rare and beautiful treasures. And so the Proverbs here have a variety of ways they teach us. And, and there are metaphors. And the house built here is your life, your family, your estate, if you will. And the rooms that are filled with rare and beautiful treasures character qualities and goodness and, and blessings of God that accompany um, faith and, and faithfulness of the believer. So this is a common analogy, okay? Jesus himself closed out his Sermon on the Mount with um, a metaphor of about two, uh, a wise and a foolish man, of course, who's building their house. The wise man builds his house on the rock, which is putting Jesus' teaching into practice. And uh, when the storms come, the storms of life come, the house, the life endures. And so wisdom, God's wisdom, is the architectural blueprint for an indestructible and blessed life. And so what's up with the rooms? He says, if you walk through somebody's life in their living room, in that person's life, you're going to find rare things like a clean conscience, like peace of mind, like confidence. When things go wrong, they just have, they have a calm about them. They're not always fretting and anxious. 
There's a moral purity. These are the treasures that you can find in somebody's house. You know, inexhaustible patience, love for the unlovely, grace for underperformers, a tight rein on their tongue, mercy for the undeserving, words full of truthfulness, a selfless attitude. Those are rare treasures indeed. And they can be filled in your house if you live by wisdom, he says, son. Wisdom and understanding in your life will be packed with really rare treasures and beautiful ones at that. Five through six, a wise man has great power and a man of knowledge increases strength. For waging war, you need guidance and for victory, many advisors. And so here's the question he's asked his son before. Son, if you had to choose one or the other, you couldn't have both, uh, which would you rather be? Really, really buffed, or would you rather be really, really smart? Now, the answer is, I want to be both, Dad, you know, like King David, you know. Both may not be a bad idea, but the New Testament says physical fitness is a good thing. It's of some value, First. Uh, Timothy chapter 4. It says physical training, some value, but godliness, exercising your, your spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible every day, that takes, it's like going to the gym a little bit because you really don't want to do it all the time. Uh, going to church, serving in church, uh, dying to selfish things, picking up your cross, following. These are all exercising your faith. And he says, if you do that, you'll have great strength. So here's what he's saying. Son, listen, wisdom trumps a strength. Wisdom trumps strength. That's what he's saying. Verse seven. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the assembly at the gate, he has nothing to say. So here's a sad observation of why a fool forfeits wisdom Uh, That's really within reach of everybody. That's what the Bible teaches. And the sad consequences of failure to grasp God's wisdom. So the verse says that wisdom is too high for the fool. Well, what? Come on. If you've been tracking with the Proverbs, it's always about how accessible wisdom is. Wisdom's on every street corner. It's at the corner of Main and First. She's always screaming out in front of the street. She's saying, Sibbles, come on in. Here's the driveway. I mean, it's not that you're going to drive past and miss it because her seven maidens are out on the street corner saying, come on in. Here it is. There's a big sign. There are seven pillars. You can't miss it, right? So why is it too high for this fool? Because God says, you know, little children come to me. They understand the gospel. Well, um, Wisdom is not, uh, the lack of wisdom is not wisdom's fault, nor is it God's. But it's the fool who won't look up toward heaven, toward God. I I like one writer put it this way. A fool's eyes only work horizontally in the plane of his habits, thoughts, feelings, and experience. He does not care to lift his head to acknowledge the true and living God who offers a very different path for men to take. It is too high for him, meaning he loves himself too much. Wisdom is beyond the realm of immediate gratification. So it's higher, more noble thinking than he cares to entertain. And that's why he'll always be a, that's funny, 
I, that's why he'll always be a fool, is how it should be written. But I left the L off by accident, so it says, that's why he'll always be a foo. <laughs> it works. He'll always be a foo. Why? <laughs> why? Because we don't look up. When we get a plate of food, we just look down like livestock animals. <laughs> there's, no, there's no looking up and saying, God, I just want to pause and thank you. Where would I be without your love? Thanks for always taking good care of me. Thank you for this good meal. Amen. Oh, not a fool. He, can't, he doesn't do that. It's too high for him. Moving on. Oh, he has nothing to say at the gate. The gate is the town hall. That's where people come. Hey, I got a problem. I got a problem. I got a problem. He's got nothing to say. He's at town hall going, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So it's God's understanding. The way he made people is that we're supposed to have, his people are supposed to have answers. We're supposed to say, let me tell you how to solve that problem. Let me tell you how to get out of that fear. Let me tell you how to find rest, how to find fulfillment. How do I solve this problem? Have a real big problem with fear. I don't know. Eight and nine. He who plots evil will be known as a schemer. The schemes of folly are sin, and men detest the mocker. So, you know, Solomon talking to his son, his boy, he's always giving him motivation and inspiration to take the higher road and listen. The higher road is always more work. You can slide down a hill, easy. It's easy. All you have to do is get a piece of cardboard. You don't even need that. You just sit down and gravity will take you down. But if you want to take the high road, it's always work. So there's always has to be from the Holy Spirit a little motivation to help us do the right thing because the right thing is always the hard thing to do. And do not ever tell me when I give you some advice. But that's too hard. Okay then do the dumb thing and suffer because it's easier, right? No, we don't want to do that. Amen? Okay, so you know the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? It was the very first self-help book ever written, right? Well, here's a book inside if you want to get to the gist of what the book would be about. Uh, It would be this proverb, How to Lose Friends and Get Everyone to Hate You. Uh, All right, (laughs) so... Be a mocker, be a schemer, be somebody who's always trying to be full of yourself, puffed up with pride. You know everything. You're beyond criticism and correction. You know what you hate. You hate correction. Nobody can say anything to you. And the three words you never say, I am sorry. No, not you, because you don't need to say you're sorry. You know why? Because you're always right, right? Okay, disdain for others, their ideas. It's only your opinion that matters. You're always scheming, excusing, justifying your bad behavior. And he says, listen, you want to be liked? Nobody likes that guy. Nobody invites him to the party. God even has a hard time with him. Okay, moving on, verse 10. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? You know, I always pick one that's my favorite. Bingo of the chapter. I like this. And you looked at me like, I don't get that. Why is that your favorite? Well, okay, I'll tell you. It's my favorite because adversity measures your strength. And this is what I 
I just get a kick out of this. God tells us in the Bible, you're going to have lots of trouble, but don't worry about it. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Uh, Peter and Paul, the apostles, they tell us, you're destined for it. It's, part, it's a normal part of being a Christian. It's trouble's going to come, difficulties. Through many adversities, we enter the kingdom of, of heaven. So I've already quoted three or four scriptures that say, you know, count it all joy when you fall into troubles. That's number five, right? So when it comes, when we fall apart, the Bible's saying, to the degree you fall apart, you've outed how really weak you are on the inside. So it's sort of like you fall apart, something happens, you lose your job, you fall to pieces, right? And, and it's kind of like, seriously? That's what the scripture's saying. Are you kidding me? Are you, are, are, are you in connection with the living God and the Lord is your shepherd? You shall not lack anything because God Almighty who spoke and the universe leapt into existence now makes his dwelling Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your heart and has fused your spirit to his so that you are one, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or God the Son. And then you falter when some little trouble comes your way. How how small is your strength? How little is your God? How small is your faith? That's what he's, come on, man. Don't fall apart so easily. And if you do, you better go on your knees and say, what's wrong with me? How small is my faith? How small is my strength? How big is your God? All right, moving on. 11 and 12. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. And if you say, we didn't know anything about this, does not he who weighs the heart, like he sees what's going on inside of you, doesn't he know? Does not he who guards your life know about it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? All right, truth be told, and I have this here. This is a bell ringer. This is probably my my favorite one of the chapter and maybe in all of Proverbs. A fiery inspiration to put our faith into practice. A call to care, to have compassion. The text says those being led away to death, staggering towards slaughter. It's not literally, it's spiritually, because all of Proverbs says uh, when you are given to lust or greed or adultery, those ways end in death, right? So we're not talking about seeing, though you could apply it to somebody who is in need physically. You have the spirit of God in you. You're supposed to make a difference if somebody is being hauled off or uh, victimized, you should step in with common sense and, or make a difference, you know. So they're on their way, they're on the wrong path, and they're misguided souls who are staggering to spiritual destruction. Uh, the, the staggering means they're, they're kind of deceived, there's some blindness, it means kind of they're spiritually intoxicated. And you, my friend, you have the truth. You understand what the Bible says about perishing, You know what Jesus said about hell? Jesus said, whoever has the son has life, but he who does not have the son shall not see life for the wrath of God abides on them, you see. And so you can't say, well, I didn't know that and I don't know this person thinks that they're on a good road, but the road is out and I'm not gonna do anything about it. He says, you can't live like that. 
God holds us responsible with the knowledge of the truth comes an obligation to share that saving truth with the soul that's in harm's way. And if that soul perishes in your sphere of influence, he, he's going to hold you accountable. I'm not saying that you are going to lose your salvation, but you will hear about it. He holds us complicit, complicit in their demise. If somebody in your sphere of influence you just let them go for whatever reason, fear of rejection, you want to avoid a little persecution because people don't like to be told they're on the wrong path. They don't like to be told, hey, you're staggering off a cliff here. They don't want to. They come back with a rebuff to that, and so that's what makes us not want to do it. Fear of rocking the boat or just naked apathy. We don't want to get involved because it's none of my business and it's too much work and I can't be bothering. I'm too distracted with my own concerns, you know? or my unchecked selfishness, just plain old unbelief. Unbelief, because you don't really believe that if that person had a heart attack, think of somebody you know who doesn't know Jesus, who's in your sphere of influence. If they have a heart attack, God forbid, and die tonight, all things being equal and no change, then they perish. And that, my friend, is forever. So unbelief says, well, I don't really believe that. So there's no fire to do anything about it because you're sort of in this kind of quasi-belief, unbelief thing. But if you really believe that that person has a heart attack or that person has a car accident, that person dies in your sphere of influence, then you're not going to be obnoxious and weird and crazy and do crazy things that make them put push them the, uh, further away. But in love, you're going to be prayerful. You're going to be thinking. You're going to be open. You're looking constantly for how much to say, when, when to say, when not to say. But you care. You're praying. If, if God just, just outed all of our prayer lives right now and just put them all on a piece of paper, your unsaved loved ones, your coworkers, the, the the ones that God put you next to them so that they won't perish, so that they could hear the gospel in some way. At least make it on your prayer list so we check your prayer list right now. Where are the names? Where are the names? That's what he's asking. Are there names on your heart? Are they on your list? Are you trying? Are you caring? Do you really believe that person you're dealing with every day is going to perish? Don't do that. He's gonna, he says, listen, you can't say, I had no idea. He goes, he knows what's in your heart. He knows everything you know. He knows you understand what hell means and perishing and accepting Jesus. He knows. And he's been guarding your life, so he hangs out around you. That's the verse's meaning, is that not only does he see the inside and all your thoughts he knows, but he's on the outside too, so he knows your opportunities that you've had. And he's just saying, come on, man. Come on, work with me here. Yeah, we can't claim. So in this life at the renewal, we'll be repaid. We'll be repaid. Good and bad. 13 and 14. Eat honey, my son. What a concept. For it is good. Honey from the comb, sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is sweet to your soul. So I'm going to compare honey and wisdom. One to your tongue, 
and wisdom to your soul. If you find it, there's sweet future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. And so why, why does he have to tell us to almost a command to do something that we should be doing by natural inclination? Why would somebody have to say, hey, eat dessert, man. Eat dessert. Enjoy cheesecake. Come on. <laughs> this is a command. Why? Because we're so messed up that we prefer dirt and gravel and rocks and poisonous plants. And we shove that in there, you know, the sin and and all kinds of things that we think we want to do that'll bring us joy in life. And he says, dude, it's not in adultery. That's poisonous. It's not in greed. It's not in violence. It's not in revenge. It's not in these things. It's not in gossiping. It's in doing God's will. It's the word of God. He says, wisdom to your soul. Wisdom will be honey to your soul. When you live wisely, you know the the nom nom, nom 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 of the honey. That means you like it. It's a sound you make when you're... All right. You, you know, how many of you like honey? Come on, raise your hand. Now, the rest of you liars, put your hands up. Everybody loves honey. Doesn't love honey. Honey is healthy, A, and it's, there's a pleasure, nothing like honey. And when the kids are little, mom and dad, for the first time when they're eating and all of that, you, you dip your finger in some honey and you put it in little Junior's mouth and they light up like a Christmas tree. It's so fun to watch because there's nothing like honey. And there's nothing like when wisdom is applied to your soul and suddenly your marriage improves. Why? Because you stopped doing it the stupid way and you started like, you know, being nice to each other, serving one another. So instead of saying, my needs, my needs, my needs, you're saying, you know, how do I contribute to this mess? And I wonder how it would be like to be married to somebody like me. And so I just want to let you know, you know, that must be hard sometimes. That's wisdom instead of you're the problem and you're not meeting my needs. That's not how you ever fix anything, Right? And so when your marriage starts to get better, oh, it's honey to your soul. Or when, when there's a gentle answer that puts out a fire because that's what God says to do. Or when God rewards you for being generous. Or when you disarm some volatile situation because you have wisdom. Or when you beat out somebody else for the job because you're using wisdom and you get the job. Or you please your boss because you have wisdom. And you get the promotion. You get the raise. That's sweet honey to your soul, right? And then when you're standing before Jesus and you're going to reign and rule with him forever instead of gnashing your teeth in hell, there's a sweetness to your soul that you applied wisdom to your life. Moving on. 15 and 16. Do not lie in wait like an outlaw against the someone who's right with God, a believer. Do not raid their dwelling place. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. So this is an easy one. He says, heads up, and he's speaking to the wicked, the unbelievers who just have it out for God's people. 
and, and some people do, and especially in some countries, and even in this country, um, trying to undermine God's people will be ultimately very futile. So uh, the New Testament passage that I thought of was in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where it says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Why? He says, listen, God is on our side. He's poured hope into us, and hope springs eternal. So we may get beat down by life, but hope springs eternal. God is with us. And he causes a person who's right with him, a righteous person means you're right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, to rise up every time. Now, you may get beat down, but you'll get back up. God's people always get back up, you know? And I've used this before. It's like that whack-a-mole game in the carnivals. You know, I've got a picture of it here. You know that thing where the mole pops up and then you whack it down and then another one pops up and then you whack it down and another one pops up. And this is what I'm saying. Thank you for that picture. You don't... (laughs) That's what it's like. He's saying you cannot... What are you going to do to somebody who has eternal life? What are you going to do with, a, with a, a gal or a guy who's got the spirit of the living God in them who says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? What are you going to do to him? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10? Don't worry about those who could kill the body, but then after that, they're done. What can they do? Well, we're like, Jesus, easy for you to say right there. You know, don't worry about that. He says, you know what you should worry about? Worry about the God who after the body is destroyed has the true power to let you into heaven or keep you out. Worry about him, but don't fear the person with the gun. That's an amazing statement by the Lord. And so what he's saying is, listen, uh, we're indestructible until our time comes physically and uh, then we live forever with him. So uh, why do the wicked fall and not get up? Because there's nobody to help them. He has put out a hand every single time, but they don't want the hand. Not that he wouldn't help them. But they fall, do you notice? We get up because there's a hand, and we take it. They won't. Verses 17 and 18. Do not gloat when your enemy falls, when he stumbles. Do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see it and disapprove and turn his wrath away from him. And the idea is now he's got some concern with you. So we don't want that. Now, I read this in light of the last couple of days. And I, you know, Scooby-Doo, you know, when he, when he knows he's in trouble, he says, rot row. <laughs> so I read this and I was just kind of like, I think God's people need to read this in light So it's dishonoring to God for us to rejoice, listen, over the misfortune of others and even people who we dislike or disrespect or feel they have it coming. It is not becoming of a Christian to taunt, to tease, to wag our fingers. I told you so. She got what she deserved and go on Facebook and do your thing. Aha, aha, finally. Justice was done, and blah, 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 because she's a bad guy, and he's married to she's married to the bad guy, and all of that stuff. Don't gloat. 
Why? Because God doesn't gloat. He says, I take, listen to this, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. I take no delight in the death of the wicked. I take no delight. God's not cheering when somebody falls or humiliates themselves or destroys their entire career because they've done criminal things. He's not happy. Justice is served. But if you've got to represent a God who doesn't gloat when his enemy falls, but he's heard about it. He feels for them. He loves them. He says, could you please better represent me instead of going on Facebook and getting into little bickering matches and sounding like arrogant, self-righteous, small-hearted people. We serve the living God who just has this beautiful, unconditional love and grace and mercy. What does it say? Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. Why? He says, because you're sons of the Father. And the Father is kind to the wicked and the ungrateful. So make sure as his son or daughter that your remarks are in keeping with a God who is kind to the wicked and kind to the ungrateful. That would mean you and your remarks, every last one of them, are kind to the wicked. So just go over your stuff. Go over your stuff and do a lot of deleting. (laughs) Amen. And if you don't think that I struggle with every single proverb that has ever come out of my mouth, then I got a bridge for you to buy it somewhere, as they say, 19 through 20. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future hope, and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. Now, that doesn't sound fun at all. That is verse 19 and 20. Okay, so this one's easy. A foundation for sweet peace, day in and day out in a world filled with wrongdoers. Evil people keep prospering and gaining the upper hand, but here's the truth of this. It's really easy. It's not over till it's over, and Jesus is going to appear, and when the dust settles, the wicked shall be no more. There will, it says about heaven, it will not come into your mind the misdeeds of this life. You won't be able to recall all these terrible things that are now in your psyche, none of that because it would defile us. So a day is coming. It is not as it appears today. That's all he's saying there. Verses 21 and 22, fear the Lord and the king, my son, and do not join with the rebellious, for those two will send sudden destruction upon them, wrongdoers. And who knows what calamities they can bring, the Lord and the king. Civil government, which is an extension of the Lord and the Lord himself who is ruling the universe. So here's what he's saying. It's a simple one too. Uh, stay safe, son. You know, a father wants his son or his daughter to be safe. And he's saying safety depends, listen, on knowing your place in the power structure of the universe, which is God, and the power structure in society, which is civil Government, which is an extension ultimately of God. So here's what he's saying. Don't, (laughs) by being a wrongdoer, don't get on the wrong side of God or the civil authorities. 
because you have no idea the potential calamity that will come from the power structure. Stay on the right side of God and the governing authorities. Do right. Do right. And you'll have nothing to worry about. 23 through 25. These are also sayings of the wise, which points out that these are not all penned by Solomon. He's saying, okay, some other sayings here and there that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. To show partiality and judging is not good. Whoever says to the guilty, you're innocent. Peoples will curse him and nations will denounce him. But it will go well with those who convict the guilty and rich blessing will come upon them. So here he's talking to uh, sons who may end up being uh, judges and leaders. And so just saying, look, favoritism is out. Um, Justice requires you to be unbiased. You know, you can't show favoritism. You know, wrong is wrong, whether they're related to you, whether you know the person and like and love them, whether they, you owe them something, or whether you have something to gain or lose. You just can't make a judgment call based on any of those things. So if you let the guilty off the hook, you may get what you want in the short term, but the whole world, people around you will denounce that and they will despise you because even people in the world uh, know what's socially acceptable and what's not. And so that's what he's saying here. What makes it so egregious is the hypocrisy of it because it's a judge. So it's a, you're the judge. You're not supposed to do that. Your whole thing is, is that you have to call right or wrong without being influenced right? God shows no favoritism, and neither are we allowed to do that. So it's like police, when they're corrupt, it's just double. It's terrible, because the very person who's supposed to be upholding the law is breaking the law. That's the idea there, is is that don't do that. The whole world will denounce you. You have to have courage to be a straight shooter. Uh, Call a spade a spade means call a spade a shovel, it means call, call, call it by its name. That's what he's saying. And here's the interesting thing about why this is important. Convicting the guilty is the first step to redemption. If you don't convict the guilty, if you don't call them on the carpet, if you're always rescuing people because you love them and you don't want them to suffer the consequences and all that nonsense... They need to feel and be convicted and call it out. This is what you've done. This is your sentence. This is the punishment. Here are the ramifications. So now, with the pain and the consequences and justice being served, there can be some redemption and restoration and God's love and healing. But without it, he's lost forever. Lost forever because he never got caught, stopped, sentenced, judged. He's still thinking, ah, I got away with it, I got away with it, I got away with it, and then he dies, you see. So he's saying, there's more on the line here uh, than you think. And so verse 26, here's one. An, un- an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Let's talk about that. So there's a connection between giving an honest answer and an expression of genuine love and caring for someone. 
So it's not always easy to give an honest answer, and it, it's easier to skirt around the truth when there's some distance in a relationship. So let's compare the kiss on the lips to a, to a Middle Eastern air kiss, which goes, ma, ma, and you kiss, you kiss, and then a third time, right? But you don't even make contact with the, with the you can but especially the guys, they just don't touch. There's just like this kind of kiss, right? But you do that with acquaintances, with people you don't know even. I mean, so it's not direct, and so there's no, there's no real um, caring, right? But if even an enemy kissed uh, Jesus, what did he say to Judas? Is it with a kiss? Is it with a kiss? Really? You're going to betray me with a kiss. And he air kissed him on the cheeks, you know. This is the one, get him. Now, a kiss on the lips, he says, that shows intimacy and genuine caring about the person. So, so in other words, truth spoken in love is what someone does when they care deeply about the person. It's real. It's real. You're not telling the person what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. Verse 27, finish your outdoor work, get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Love this. So there's only three left, and this is the first of the three. Um, First things first, there's wisdom in not only what we're doing, but how you get it done, how you go about your work and your projects you need wisdom as well. Human nature, put the cart before the horse. That's why we have the saying, put the cart before the horse, means we are so hasty and impatient and want immediate gratification that we don't want to do steps one, two, three, and four when we want five. We want five. So you just go in for five. So what you do is you you have the honeymoon first on your third date or your first date in the world. You have the honeymoon, and then you keep on having the honeymoon. But there's no uh, covenant. There's nothing. We're just, you know, whatever, having the honeymoon. And then you get pregnant, and you have the baby. And whoops, so I'm pregnant. Well, what's some guy who kind of likes being around you in that area, but not much more? And then you decide, should we get married now that we've had the honeymoon and have the kid? Maybe we should get married. And so you end up getting married. That was three, two, one, instead of one, two, three, right? Just kind of reversed. And, and we do that in all kinds of ways. So he says, listen, you know, instead of buying a new car, <laughs> get a, a clunker because you can't afford $500 a month. But I want a new car. No, first, when you're starting out, you want to stay out of debt. And so you want to scrape together some money and you get a $2,500 little Honda Civic and it runs for 350 million miles, right? <laughs> oh, no, 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 All that I have, it's important to me to have the wheels, you know? How was your PG&E bill? First, think about that. And then uh, jump into a house when you first get married. No, 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 no. Don't even have a down payment. So it means the mortgage is going to be more expensive and you're in it backwards. Why not get an apartment and save up the money? No, 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 because I want five. That's steps one, two, three, and four. Do you know how long that'll take me? 
Finish your outdoor work. One, get your fields ready. Two, then build your house. You know, have a plan, have a savings account, and then do this. Instead of jumping to five, stop jumping to five. It's not smart. Start at one. Takes so long, so hard work. Okay. <laughs> then go to five and, and don't come to my office about it. <laughs> You know, that's the thing. Okay, can I make an appointment for counseling? Yeah, why? Because it went to five. It should have gone to one, two, three. Oh, yes. Come on and have a seat. Verse 28 and 29. Do not testify against your neighbor without cause and use your lips to deceive. Do not say, I'll do to him or her as he or she has done to me. I'll pay that guy or that gal back for what they did. So verses 28 to 29, yet another reminder against the sin of getting even. It's a sin. Another thing that's a natural inclination to all of us. You hurt me, I want to hurt you back, right? Jesus said, don't do that. If they hurt you, bless them. Uh, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. Leave, and, and here's why you can do it. I want you to keep your heart free of unforgiveness, bitterness. I want your heart to be sweet. It needs to be sweet in here because you represent me. I don't want to fill with hate and anger and scheming and uh, smallness of heart. So he says, knock that off. And the way that you can chill about it is know that vengeance is mine. He says, that's my department. I'm not, I don't let anybody off the hook. So trust me, they hurt you, I'll deal with it more creatively more ingeniously, more powerfully than you can ever hope to imagine. So he says, trust me, stop it. If you want to carry it out, you carry it out. You know what? Now I'm concerned. Do not avenge yourselves, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll keep burning coals on his head. The idea is there. He's going to have a burning conviction of, ah, I've got to do something about this. And you're going to change his life by doing something good. Let me handle the technicalities. And, and he's going to finish up with a little poem about lazy bones again. All right? Because we can't go too long in the Proverbs without taking a jab at lazy people. Okay, here's my ode to lazy bones. I went past the field of the sluggard, past the vineyard of the man who lacks judgment. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed, and I learned a lesson for what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like an armed robber, and scarcity like an armed man. And so there you have it. He's repeating himself a little bit, but you know, uh, laziness is such a terrible breach of God's law of love. It, it does you in, it takes your family down and your obligation to community. So you become just a burden to everybody. And he says, don't do that. So here's what he's saying. Uh, learn vicariously by looking at other people's lives and see what, when they're blessed, imitate that. And when they're not, 
learn a lesson. So he says it starts with the consequences. He says, I'm driving by and I see this, the fields in disrepair, thorns and thistles and weeds have grown up, choked everything out. The fence is falling apart, falling over, big gaps. It's just the livestock gets out. There's no milk, there's no food, there's no wool because they're all escaped because of your bad fence that you won't repair. Nothing to eat, no crops to sell and all of this. And so the property is identified and then as the place of the sluggard. Now the sluggard just moves slow in the face of any required uh, effort. Now, I've got, got one writer said this, the lazy person hurts himself while he's making uh, his excuses, twiddling his thumbs, watching TV, playing video games, taking a nap. He's neglecting his family, his obligations and responsibilities. It's a bad testimony as a Christian and a burden to the community. And poverty comes in and need is everywhere. But then another writer suggested spiritual laziness and came up with this. I passed the life of a spiritual sluggard, a lazy Christian, a man who lacks judgment, thoughts running wild, passions and lust dominating, constant drama in his life, chaos in the home, kids unruly, strife in the marriage, and then I applied my heart and I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little break from church, very little Bible reading, no personal devotions, no spiritual disciplines, and trouble will come into the home like a robber and chaos and drama into your life like an armed man. Watch out for spiritual laziness, the cause of all most of Christians' problems is because they're too lazy to do the disciplines of reading every day, praying, bringing your heart before its maker every day, bringing it in. Here it is, God. Here I am. Here's what's going on with me. Quiet, listening, reading, reflecting, letting God work. Without that, you're inviting a life that's this deep and a whole lot of problems and struggles. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are so kind and loving to us. And so we are so grateful, Father, tonight for your mercy and your love. We ask now that you bless us as we go our ways and that We ask the Holy Spirit to, to let this truth stick and help us to put it into practice so we can be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.